So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the um, Capital Market Session. Uh, my name is uh, Rolf Johan Ringdahl. I'm a partner with the law firm Bar in Oslo. And it's my privilege to introduce uh, the panel to you uh, with uh, Jim Serenza sitting next to me, who is the Managing Director of DMB Markets Inc. Next to him, Richard Wabu, who is the Managing Director of Corporate Finance with Fernley Securities. And at the far end, Doug Mavrinka, uh, Managing Director and Global Head of Maritime Investments at Jefferies. Uh, sharp minds in the audience who were here last year uh, may recall that the three gentlemen formed a very good panel on the same subject last year. Uh, if we were to supplement the panel this year, it would have been nice to see a bright female from Asia who could supplement uh, the European and American stance. Uh, and having listened to the Hong Kong presentation earlier on, I think there would have been a lot to learn from the activity in the Asian capital markets. Uh, but I suspect we'll have a focus on uh, the US and European markets uh, in this session. Um, and the very interesting discussions that these panelists held last year ended, as some of you may remember, on a quite positive note. It was stated that the fundamentals in shipping were very good, that the stock price of shipping, as, uh, shipping companies was unreasonably low and there was a lot to uh, invest in. And the conclusion was that we've just left the starting block. That's 12 months ago, and in those 12 months, the shipping index has declined by approximately 20%. So Richard, what went wrong? Um, well, a lot of things. Uh went went wrong. Um, it was uh, probably 12 months early with that uh, that statement. We we had that same uh, seminar in September uh, last year. Uh, we have been off the bottom uh, in May, June. Rates were recovering. Market balances looked better. Oil prices were hitting $80. Then suddenly came October and S&P were down 20%. Um, oil prices collapsed to $50. Um, the performance of all fund managers around the world, even though, you know, independent of owning shipping or Amazon, were wiped out. Um, so it was a, a sharp correction in the market. And, and uh, energy cyclicals, obviously, in that environment, is, um, you know, with a high beta uh, uh, segments, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a huge impact. Uh, that we saw across the board, even though the fundamentals looked uh, reasonably well. Um, and then came some, um, you know, new investors in early January, and then suddenly a, a dam collapsed, and, uh, and um, you know, a new disaster was uh, overshipping. Um, and that was the, the end uh, for many investors uh, participating in this industry. Um, in fact, and, and I believe it, it, um, it uh, resulted in a huge risk aversion among a lot of investors out there, which have continued throughout the year. Uh, and and uh, we are still struggling with that. We're seeing 
several industries, Jawbook, for example, generating 25-30% return cash on cash today. Shares are trading 20-30-40% below net asset value. Um, the question didn't include whether or not uh, we continue to be at the starting block or the next 12 months, but uh, I guess well, we we'll get into uh, uh, We'll look into the crystal ball a little later on, but yeah. uh, it is uh, uh, an exercise associated with some risk in that you can be tested 10, 12 months from now. Uh, Doug, would you like to comment uh, in addition to what uh, Richard just said? Yeah, I would, um, I would echo a lot of what Ricard mentioned. Um, you know, it, it's hard to kind of uh, find one silver bullet when you're talking about so many various um, sectors. Um, so, for example, you referenced uh, the dam collapse uh, earlier this year. I mean, that had a dramatic impact on the dry bulk shipping market, which was it's one of those unforeseeable uh, events. Um, things like trade war escalations, macro concerns that come about as a result of trade rhetoric. And you start seeing, and you heard the products tanker panel talking about the backwardation in, uh, in certain um, uh, price strips, which then uh, encourages destocking. So all those sorts of things that aren't included in a supply-demand model, um, I think, um, you know, played a large role in, in why the market has disappointed over the last 12 months. That being said, looking forward once again, when you've heard other guys talking about order books being at record lows and, you know, the disruption from IMO 2020 and the new trade routes that are developing, you know, once again, you know, the outlook looks promising, but you always have to be mindful for those, those um, exogenous events that you just can't foresee. So these um, unforeseen developments, uh, Jim, do they uh, result in more activity within the ECM market or more in the DCM market? If, you, if we just stick for a brief period to the past 12 months. Can you hear me, first of all? Good. Because my light's not lit. Uh, DCM1, the high-yield markets continue to function. We only had a stretch in the fourth quarter where the high-yield bond curve blew out relative to the Treasury curve. Uh, during that uh, material and energy meltdown in the fourth quarter. But otherwise, the, the high-yield markets continue to function. In the last year and a half, we've been involved in 15 shipping DCM bond transactions, eight in Norway, seven in the U.S., and uh, thanks to the fact that uh, a big part of the world has negative yields, at least uh, shipping companies can often manage to get a single-digit uh, coupon in this environment. Uh, the equity side of the business, it's, it's been a drought. And uh, we've been involved in a couple of share buybacks. We've been involved in a couple of ATM programs. We've been involved in a couple of issues. Uh, you don't pay a lot of bills that way. No. no. Uh, you, know, you, look at the, you look at the S&P in the last 10 years, it's up fourfold. You look at the shipping market in the last 10 years, I think it's down 70-something percent. Right. So, Richard, in the coming 12 months, do you expect uh, the ECM or the DCM market to be the more attractive or the more active? Well, I, I guess the key, key drivers would be um, um, the fundamentals, uh, cash yields, liquidity, quality companies will be able to do transactions. Um, without a doubt, uh, in the near term, there will be more activity on the credit side. There is underlying significant interest in the sector. Uh, however, due to the massive you know, impact on fund performance and, and risk aversion, as we uh, discussed uh, in the introduction, I, I think the uh, 
the interest for, for the credit side reflects the risk aversion for, for many investors and they want to play the shipping from a credit point of view and not the equity point of view. It still offers a lot of, uh, of value. Um, as far as we are aware, there is within the shipping and oil service uh, sector around 15 transactions um, being discussed at various stages today of around 2-2.2 billion dollars, uh, which will come in the, probably in the second half and maybe in the first half of, of, of next year, depending on market development. But um, I believe the next uh, at least six months will primarily be credit focused. Well, Doug, do you think that uh, this might be a time when convertibles and uh, hybrid products will come uh, to attract more interest? Yes, Ralph, I do, and I'm glad that you asked that question because I think a convertible instrument is um, an underappreciated instrument within the shipping markets. Um, conceptually, if you're a company and your stock is trading at 85 or 90 percent of net asset value and you see an acquisition opportunity coming up, you can't utilize your equity because you would be diluting yourself. However, a convertible provides you the opportunity to raise that capital, and if it converts to equity, if you're trading at 85 or 90 percent, if you have a 30 percent conversion premium, for example, you'll be raising equity above net asset value if it converts. If it doesn't, you're sitting there with three something percent, four something percent paper, which, you know, relative to you know what companies are able to achieve uh, in the high yield markets, is quite attractive. So I think conceptually. Um, the convertible instrument does make a lot of sense. Um, and practically, you know, there's been two convertible uh, bond issuances in the U.S. over the last year and a half, Ship Finance uh, April of last year, Eagle over the summer. Um, when you compare that against the equity raises in the U.S., the successful equity raises, similar number, similar size. So it is starting to be used. Um, a little bit of good news and bad news, though. The good news is we talk to our convert desk practically daily and they tell us keep sending us ideas because the convert market is full of healthcare and technology. They're dying for new ideas. That's the good news. The bad news is, is that not all shipping companies can utilize the convert market because you need a certain degree of liquidity. And if you have a, a big dividend that you're paying, it makes it more difficult for the hedge funds to shorten the underlying. So there are ways around each of those, but, but nonetheless, I think the combination of being able to raise you know, equity if it converts above net asset value and in the meantime borrowing at 3 or 4%, there are worse ways to raise uh, capital. Hmm. We heard a lot about uh, ESG from different perspectives in previous sessions, and I think we may revisit that a bit later on even here, but we learned in one of the earlier sessions that 40% of cargo and transport is transportation of fossil uh, products. Um, and there is generally, I guess, these days, a critical eye on coal and crude oil as uh, in an, an environmental perspective. So, Richard, how does this investor sentiment on energy affect shipping and the interest in the shipping? Um, I guess the ESG is becoming increasingly uh, important to the sectors and to the energy sector. Um, shipping is obviously uh, associated with uh, fossil uh, fuels and, and, um, and uh, we have seen uh, investors increasing their uh, risk and, and, uh, and um, risk um, premium on, on uh, these kind of, of sectors. Um, uh, 
I guess you cannot substitute uh, seaborne transportation, so there will be uh, investors coming into the space if the return, return rate requirement is, is high enough. And if we look at some interesting um, service that has been taken, if you look 2010 until today, the internal rate of requirement required from investors in projects for renewables were more or less the same, maybe slightly down. For fossil fuels, is up dramatically. Um, for coal projects in 2010, investors required 15%. Last year, they did the same survey. They required 40%, up 25%. Same is for, for oil projects, various projects, whether or not this shale oil, you know, 2 to 5% increase from uh, the last eight years. So there is a, a risk. Uh, premium, which um, I think we need to get um, used to. Um, it was also mentioned uh, by by Jeff earlier in, in Financial Times. Um, there is was an article about um, uh, investors uh, complying with the Paris uh, Agreement uh, in 2014. That was around. 80, uh, 80 funds, uh, accounting for $52 billion in asset under management. Uh, this time around, according to the article, it was 1,111 billion. They will not invest in fossil fuels. Whether or not that impacts uh, shipping to a large extent you know, remains to be seen, but at the margin, of course. Um, and I guess in, in Royal Dutch Shell's annual report, they state that, um, uh, what do they call it? Um, the investment campaigns from investors is a, is a major risk for the company. So um, we, we, we heard it earlier on in the, in the financing uh, panel that the banks are also taking this, uh, this position and, and, you know, to provide financing. So I think it has had a huge impact on the fossil fuel energy space, um, indirectly on the shipping space uh, as well. And I think we um, will see some higher rate require, uh, inter, uh, IRR requirements from investors, and we need to get uh, used to it, at least for now. Doug, do you think that uh, the shipping industry will qualify relative to green financing and the new green bond products that are being uh, marketed? I think it kind of depends. Um, you know, kind of maybe some first-hand reconnaissance that we have is, um, you know, in addition to some of the capital markets, um, activities that we've been pursuing. You know, we talk with you know, owners uh, about private placement opportunities and requirements. Um, and I would say that um, you know, in certain sectors, so getting back to it's hard to kind of group all the sectors together, but like LNG, for example, we do see some green funds that are interested in investing in LNG. And now maybe they either, you know. LNG. Yes, yep. correct, yes. Right. Um, either they like the, you know, the outlook for the sector or there's a misbalance in, in what they're able to invest in and, and you know, their needs to invest. But, but we have seen and talked to some of those funds um, uh, desiring to invest in LNG shipping. Yeah. One noticeable trait, I guess, during the past 12 months since you were last on the panel is that many of the international investment banks have been uh, scaling down their focus on the uh, shipping segment. Um, and uh, uh, analysts are retreating from the space. Fewer companies have analysts. And uh, this is, uh, I guess, Jim, a quite uh, disturbing and worrying development. What, what, what's your thoughts on that? 
first of all, someone left the barn door open, and we're not going to get all the animals back in. So this is a trend that we haven't seen the end of. So you think, you think it's, not, it's, it's not something which is temporary, reflecting the current market? It's long-term? I think it's long-term. And it's not, just on the, it's not just on the sell side, it's also on the buy side. You think about, so let's, uh, first of all, you know, we had Dorian up here presenting earlier. Dorian is the only US listed LPG stock. Mm. It has seven analysts covering that company today. Only one of those analysts is a US analyst. BW, LPG, and Avans have 14 analysts covering the company. Stocks listed in Norway. I think it's a problem for the U.S. capital markets because the U.S. capital markets were the most attractive for more than one reason, not just because you had the biggest investor base, but also because you had an active community in shipping and offshore, both on the buy side and the sell side, which has now been squeezed very, very hard. And the number of major firms that have pulled out of the space in the last three months um, is concerning because you think about the education process it takes to get someone interested in making an invest investment, particularly if that investment doesn't fall into one of their fast-growing categories like ESG. So you take ESG, if you're a technology company or a healthcare company or a telecom company, great, you're, you're a big overweight. If you, if you touch energy, you're in trouble. It could be worse, it could be utility. So you're, you're, in a you're in a space which has been under pressure for a decade. A active assets under management have shrunk. They've had redemptions every year, ETFs have grown every year, and now the only thing that's working for them in the last couple of years is these ESG funds, but shipping's not part of it. So to get, to get fund managers to focus on this business to keep shipping relevant in the United States, this loss of analysts and loss of investment bankers is a concern. Yeah, I would add to that and echo uh, what, what Jim mentioned. I mean, as a former analyst, both Ricard and I, um, you know, that analyst role serves a critical function. Um, you know, you're the guy that's going on your morning call talking to the institutional sales force. Those 100 people are making 100 calls on their own. I mean, so, you know, they're your megaphones, but you're the guy originating the, the message. Um, once a firm loses coverage or drops coverage to the sector, then they're not hearing on a weekly basis what's going on in the crude oil tanker market. They're not hearing what's going on in the dry bulk market. And, you know, it was already hard enough, and you'd have to beat up on your sales guys to make your calls. Now there's no one making the calls. So the next time, you know, an issuer goes to the market, um, they don't know where the bodies are buried because shipping was already a sector that has lost money for the last 10 years, so it was already an uphill battle. But, but you know, whenever that inevitable time comes where you know, the window is more open for more, um, for more companies to, to issue equity, um, you know, it's going to be a, a bit more of a challenge than it has been once you lose the pulse of that investor base. Some firms like ours that are on this panel remain committed to the space. Um, but, but, you know, I'm speaking more in general that if, if I'm, you know, a company or an issuer, um, you know, the loss of the analysts, um, it, it, is a, uh, it does create some challenges. Would you like to comment on that, uh, Ricardo? Or it, 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 it might suggest then, I mean, it's clearly to have the largest financial market in the world lose interest in shipping, that sounds like uh, a, a major problem. And, uh, that might possibly 
affect uh, the geography of things, the choice of listing venue, uh, where, where are things going to happen in the future? And I mean, you're based in Oslo, even though you have a subsidiary in, in, in New York, uh, you feel the same concerns and developments that uh, Jim and Doug have raised? Not really. Uh, at least now they will come back and it will go, go, come back quickly and, and hard. Uh, it has happened several times um, uh, before. You know, when, when things are moving in the right direction, they suddenly hire uh, a team again. Um, and I think they, most of the Norwegian investment banks that are highly active in the space have also a large uh, or larger or smaller presence in, in the U.S. are actively discussing with U.S. Um, investors. So um, alongside with, with companies like Jefferies and, uh, and DMB. Um, and I think they are continuing to marketing the sector. The sector is really small. If you combine all companies, market caps of shipping companies around the world, everything from Maersk in Denmark to Mitsui OSK in, in Japan to Frontline in the U.S. to Golden Ocean in, in Norway, you come to 170, 180 mil, billion dollars. That's you know that's all global market cap of shipping. That's 0.2 percent or 0.15 percent of of uh, the total capitalization of U.S. shares alone. It's um, <laughs> it's, it's nothing really. So so it's uh, <laughs> yeah probably some it's probably a little a bit less. Um, but I think shipping will will come back. Uh, right now, it has struggled with with um, weak earnings, uh, challenging uh, macro environment, and you know cyclical business, commodity related business are not the prioritized sectors in a very uns unstable and uncertain macro environment. Um, for us in, in Fernlis, we think it's a great opportunity. Uh, so we're trying to take advantage of um, of the few uh, companies that are you know shut down their shipping coverage. Yeah. So, Jim, where do you think, with this sort of uh, bleak background picture as regards U.S. investment banks, where do you think the uh, bulk of the activity will take place going forward in the next 12 months? I think there are a couple sectors within shipping that will work well with the capital markets. I, th I think the fundamentals around the product tanker and crew tanker space, which were up here earlier, and I, I won't get into a long dissertation of our views around those sectors, but there are enough people that will see opportunities out of this disruption that's coming up. Um, it certainly does make a case for centers like Norway to get more influence. We've had a number of situations in the last two years where we've been able to list something in Norway that we have not been able to list in the U.S. Um, and so as long as Norway is in this sort of privileged position of having good number of banks, investment banks, analysts, and, and a reasonable capital market, and a, and a, and a reasonably well-educated investor base as well, places like Norway will benefit. I don't think people will avoid the U.S. It's still the most interesting. It's still the most interesting investor base to have. It's just going to be a lot more difficult to access it. So the old, well, what was frequent some years ago, where you had the 
new, new company doing a private placement being listed on the NOTC in Oslo. They're staying there for a year, year and a half, and then trying to go on to, to, to New York. That's perhaps not the model of the future, do you think? Oh, I doubt it is. You doubt it is, yeah. Well, I was just going to um, respond to your question a bit ago in, uh, in two ways. You know, the outlook that I provided that was, you know, a negative result of the analysts leaving was more from the company or the issuer standpoint. From the surviving company standpoint, it's phenomenal. Um, you know, right now those investors are still there. Randy, our analyst, um, there's 50-something analysts at Jefferies that cover all sectors. He's probably in the top five right now in terms of investor interactions over the last month. He does a great job, but also, you know, the funnel is funneling towards the surviving firms. So those guys are still there, but it's just representative of how small the market cap is, yet he's still in the top five in terms of overall interactions. Um, the other thing is, is that, you know, the U.S. market is still so big, still so deep. Um, so, you know, when we look at um, you know, Norway versus U.S., um, you know, Norway is very active. Um, and for a certain size, um, it's a very good location. But when we look at a couple of the capital markets transactions that we've been involved in over the last 12 months, um, the size of the transactions required U.S. involvement. Um, it wouldn't have um, been successfully completed without those U.S. investors. Yeah, and then we have all of Asia uh, on top of that, of course, where, where, where it's uh, apparently very active, but back to the crystal ball. I mean, we have two minutes and 40 seconds left. Um, we heard what the crystal ball last year, how that ended, but uh, I'll ask you this time, each one of you, which, which are the segments uh, that uh, look promising? What, what's uh, hot and what is not? Starting with you, Doug, what do you think? Um, I personally like the outlook for the refined products tanker market. Um, a lot of the shipping sectors are likely to benefit from the disruption on the supply side of scrubber installations, et cetera, et cetera. However, the products tanker market also has the added benefit of benefiting from new trade patterns developing because of uh, fuel availability and dislocation. So, uh, so I tend to prefer the products market. And which one will you pick, uh, Ricardo? Do I have to pick one? Well, you can pick two. Pick, pick a sector. Yeah. We are uh, optimistic on, on shipping. I believe there's uh, opportunities in Drabok, tankers, LPG, LNG. I believe the opportunities is upwards in terms of pricing. Um, on our estimates, you have 20 to 30% return cash on cash for 2020. I believe you have started to see impacts of IMO 2020. You know, if the world is not collapsing, which is a big uncertainty, of course, if more demand is continuing to, to grow moderately, I believe we will have a very exciting 2020. And Jim, what's your pick? I'll take product first and crude second, but product with, with more refined products. Ten years ago, about 15% of all product touched the water. Now we're somewhere in the low 20s. And you think about where the refinery additions have been made, roughly half of them are not going to be the absorbers of that additional product that gets refined. So it'll, by, by definition, I believe more will touch the water. And if you need more compliant fuels, then you have to put more crude oil into the system. So I do think that uh, the crude tanker segment gets uh, some benefit from that as well. So maybe we just left the starting block this year also. Thank you to the panelists. Thank you.